Welcome to Camera Ready and Able, the podcast that explores the intersection of media change and personal growth. I'm your host, Barbara Barna Able, and my calling is to help you tap into your superpowers, clarify your message, and make an impact on the world. This episode is brought to you by the word access. The Oxford English Dictionary defines access in several ways. One, the means or opportunity to approach or enter a place. Two, the right or opportunity to use or benefit from something. Three, the right or opportunity to approach or see someone. And four, the process of obtaining or retrieving information, which is why I was so excited when my guest for this episode, Nora Ali, chose the word access because it is one of the primary drivers for this podcast, access to information and ideas. Nora is the CEO and co-founder of a new media venture, which will be announced soon and is very exciting. And she was most recently covering innovation and technology across entertainment and business as a news anchor on Cheddar. I could go on for days about Nora's accomplishments. So here are the highlights. Harvard, Asian equities analyst at Goldman Sachs, an early employee at Jet.com, where she led teams of engineers and designers. And Nora is a gifted violinist. If you haven't seen her mini concerts on Instagram, you are in for a treat, as you are in for a treat right now. Welcome, Nora. Thank you, Barbara. I wish I could take that intro with me everywhere I go and just press a play button every time I enter a room. That was great. Thanks, Barbara. Well, you are so welcome, but that is part of the power of podcasting. <laughs> I What's literally this could do that. <laughs> yes, you can. Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're ever so welcome. But getting started, out of the 170,000 words currently in usage in the English language, why did you choose access as your word? Access has been, thankfully, available to me for my entire life for many reasons, starting first and foremost with my parents who came from Bangladesh, moved to the US, the usual American dream story, trying to give their kids a chance. But I've also realized that throughout my career, I've been given a chance. That's largely what access means to me is being given a chance, even if you don't have the prerequisites that are normally required, literally for a certain job or a certain role. And people have given me a chance and allowed me to learn how to do the job on the job. But I love that you listed out those different definitions of access because there's so many different kinds of access. And I think you have a lot of control over the last one that you mentioned, which is the process of obtaining or retrieving information. And that's where I try to really lean into the notion of access is I can read books, I can listen to podcasts, I can network with people to learn about industries or jobs that I'm not familiar with. And by doing that, you open the door for other kinds of access with different people, um, different places where you can enter. So I just feel like access encompasses how I've come to be where I am and what I'm trying to give to other people. What are you trying to give to other people? For my new venture, especially mm -hmm. without getting into the specifics, I want to create a place for underrepresented voices to be heard. And underrepresented can mean many things. But in the most traditional sense, I've been a huge supporter of women and people of color, especially in the media space and, and in the tech and entrepreneurship space. When I was at Cheddar, I launched a show called All Hands Race Toward Inclusion, which was meant to both look at issues of diversity and inclusion with a critical eye, but also celebrate stories 
that go untold about people of color and women and others who are underrepresented in different fields. So I am just hoping to give access to people who don't have the path or the traditional means to have a voice by leveraging my own expertise, my own network, and my own platform to be able to do so for others. Who are some of the people who helped you? I was going to say grant you access, but I don't think that's the (laughs) right language. But sometimes it's a teacher or a mentor, even a virtual mentor, Mm -hmm. because you have accomplished a lot. And it, it was interesting the way you you chose to say access in terms of being invited in and given the opportunity to prove yourself on the job, because having met you through one of those processes, you bring a lot to the party. <laughs> well, thank you, Barbara. <laughs> I try to bring a lot to the party. <laughs> the interaction between yourself and myself is one of the most common examples that I use when I talk to people about access. So for your listeners, I had been working at Jet.com for several years, which is an e-commerce startup, then got acquired by Walmart, and I had wanted to get into television hosting. And I had given myself this timeline, Nora, you're going to put six months of effort into this. I made a spreadsheet in Excel with different contacts and people to cold reach out to. Anyway, somehow I ended up in your hosting class and learned about this role at Cheddar. And you gave me that chance. You didn't know my resume. You didn't know who I was besides my prompter reading and the exercises we did in your class. And you said, you know what, just send me an email with some bullets about yourself and I'll get back to you. And you got back to me, you kept your word, because a lot of times when people say I'll get back to you, they don't. But like the next day, we're like, okay, you can come in for an interview at Cheddar. And then the rest is history. I love getting in the room. Sometimes that's the hardest part. But I find that when I'm in the room, I connect with people. That's where I feel like you can get people to give you a chance is when you meet them face to face. So I try as quickly as possible to meet people instead of having a lot of exchanges over email or other forms of communication. Mm, Okay. You just said something really important, but first I do want to clarify for anyone listening and for you, Nora, that I have a very secret platform that I use called Google. (laughs) And so when you took my class and I was so impressed with you in that class, I did hit the Googles. Smart. Yes. (laughs) You had a lot going for you. And so I do just want to acknowledge that you're, you know, a little underselling or, you know, well, humility, you, hu- your humility is a, is a lovely trait, but I just <laughs> want anyone understanding that it, um, it wasn't just your prompter reading so that made me, you know, go to my client and say, Hey, I, I met someone I think that you should meet. Well, I'm glad, you, be- <laughs> I'm glad you clarified that Barbara, because you'd be surprised how many people don't do the research. I've had plenty of networking meetings where someone will reach out to me to try to connect and get to learn more. And they haven't looked at my LinkedIn to know that I worked in tech and finance before certain roles. And I feel like you just come with so much more ammunition going into a meeting if you've not just Googled them. But my my secret, it's not really a secret, but I've been doing it a lot lately, is search for somebody's name in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Because if they're even remotely important in any way, they've probably been on somebody's podcast and you can listen to them have a discussion with other people. You can listen to how they think. You can listen to their motivations instead of reading about what they've curated on LinkedIn or what someone else has written about them in an article that you can find on Google. So I do this with every remotely important meeting that I have. Not even important, just any meeting that I have. I will search for them and listen to them speak. And then you just come much more 
well-equipped than most other people would. Okay. Stopping on that for one second, could not agree with you more. So everyone take note, because this is actually a hot tip in terms of preparation, research, also visioning. Because when you go into a meeting and you've seen the person and you've heard them and you understand their body language, your brain is actually processing this information. So you are not meeting a stranger. You're making very strategic and tactical decisions about how you're going to communicate in that meeting based on what your research has shown you. So if they don't come up in a podcast search, don't stop there. Also, Google, which you know, is a pretty big company. So I've heard, uh, and I'm obviously sorry to be, you know, glib and facetious, but I meant I'll do the same thing with a YouTube search, or even if you just put their name into a Google search, if they've been in any kind of video content, it'll typically come up really, really smart. That makes a huge difference. Find if people on panel discussions, wherever that is. But I want to go back to the really important point you made a minute ago, which is about getting in the room. And that's a very, very important part of the access conversation because traditionally for women and people of color and uh, people in the LGBTQ community, et cetera, getting in the room is a really big issue. It's the reason why some people you know, use initials in their names or try to create some sort of neutral name in order to, you know, to beat an algorithm, let's say, uh, and, and all sorts of cultural traditional preferences towards, you know, men in certain positions. So uh, can we talk a little bit about what it is to, you know, to you to get Mm. in the room? Have you ever felt like, uh, challenged and couldn't get in the room? Just just to jump in right as I cut you off before I ask you a question, I just want you to talk about access. I I grew up pre Title Nine. Oh my gosh! So like not even having access to sports, which is for someone of your generation is mind boggling. (laughs) I heard the word no a lot growing up. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean, thank goodness that things have changed a lot in just the last year or so. But I am a firm believer in putting yourself in a position to open up more doors of access. And what I mean by that is the more people you get to know, quite literally, the more doors will be opened up to you. And I say this as an introvert, which for some people is hard to believe. You can be an extroverted introvert. We do on-camera stuff. We interact with people a lot for our jobs. But it stresses me out to colds reach out to people, to bother people, feel like I need something from people. But I've realized, especially with my new venture, most people aren't going to reply to you, of course, that people are busy. But you might as well reach out on LinkedIn or send an email or DM them on Instagram because maybe close to 50% of the time, at least during this, we're going to call it a Patricia, I'm not going to use the word pandemic. Um, that's what that's what the kids use on TikTok. I can't believe I said that. But uh, most of the time, or more so than before, people will actually respond and give you the time of day. And then that intro will lead to another intro, will lead to another intro eventually where you can get yourself in the door. I don't think I've had a single cold reach out networking call or Zoom where I didn't get intro to more people as a result of that. So that's how I think you can get yourself positioned to be in the room is just by opening those smaller windows into people who are in the networks and in the industries in which you want to get into. You know, fun statistic I learned for a publicist 
in PR, the standard is 100 pitches to get 10 responses to get one placement. Yes. <laughs> so you're, so that's really eye-opening, correct? So you're already, you know, batting 500 compared to that statistic before. <laughs> and now with the pandemic, you're batting a thousand. So that's impressive. But now let's really get down to brass tactics. So one thing you identified is take the action, work yourself through, coach yourself through the inhibition and, and also the acknowledging it's pretty universal, mm-hmm. right? I remember years ago being at a business lunch a long time ago with a pretty well-known writer who had a famous byline and he mentioned at the end of lunch, oh my God, I'm, I'm uh, dreading going back to the office because I've got to go contact so-and-so and I hate cold calling. And and this was a liberating moment for me because I was like, but, but wait, when you call people, they know who you are, <laughs> right? I was like, I have a weird name and nobody knows who I am. It's like, I dread cold calling. And, and, and then he said, oh no, everybody hates cold calling. I was like, oh, I thought it was just me. So that was a huge moment, like my big light bulb, aha. So one is we all go through it and we all have to get over it. So you're talking about taking the action. But I also want to get into the fact that you're actually also saying something when you're pitching people. So would you mind addressing a little bit the idea of like either how you do it, identifying value, how to connect with what's going to get someone's attention? And I'm not talking about clickbait and a clever subject line, although those are really helpful, but I have a feeling it's like there's some meat with your potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. I want to generalize a little bit more aside from a pitch and more to just general networking meetings where you're trying to just get advice from people. I have found, because I've also been on the receiving end of these kinds of messages, if you're very generic in your email or your LinkedIn message and say, I would love advice from you, then as a recipient, you don't know what that means. What are you at? What's your goal? I, I will spend my time answering specific questions for you if you're trying to meet XYZ person or understand how you launch XYZ business, specificity is so important. And I recently had a call with somebody who had reached out to me because they heard me talk on a, a certain platform. And the first question out of their mouth was, I just wanted to get some advice from you. Well, then I have to rack my brain to think about what your goals are. How can I be most helpful? You're putting the onus on the person that you're getting advice from. So when I go into these networking meetings or even send out that cold email, I, I have very specific questions as to what I want to tackle. And I like to have a call to action at the end. You might not know what the call to action is before the call starts, but during the conversation, even if it's not a call to action to benefit that person, you can at least say, okay, my follow-ups after this conversation, thank you so much, by the way, for taking the time. My follow-ups is that I'm going to send you my document for my pitch, or I'm going to send you XYZ context because I think they can be helpful to you. You have to have takeaways and next steps so that just doesn't feel like this nebulous thing that happens in a vacuum. So to, to summarize that, have specific asks, me reach out and have a call to action at the end of your interaction. I could not agree with you more. I say that the same thing too, when someone asks for a recommendation, send me your points. So, and, and some people are taken aback at first thinking that's a weird thing to ask for or that it's too egotistical on their part. And I'm like, no, I have no idea what you've said in your interview process. 
right? And mm-hmm. I, I want to I want to be able to back that up, and then I can add my own things. You know, if I know you, we've worked together. Mm-hmm. But if you're going for something and you want them to know these things about you, I I need to know that, and it just again makes it much easier for me either writing that letter or being prepared for that phone call that I know what are those talking points. The same thing, and this is way pre-pandemic, but in my industry, asking someone to go to coffee is a big no-no just because of how valuable time is. Mm-hmm. We got to work our way up to coffee, like email exchange or whatever's going to make it easier, even a Zoom call. So that's just a, a little bit of an FYI. And I also love your calls to action. Another thing I often say to people when they're reaching out, let's say to agents or managers or different people in the industry is be very specific about your ask at the end. Mm-hmm. And even that could be just as simple as please keep me on file. Exactly. And it also just helps to close out the conversation. So both parties feel accomplished. You have a next step, even if it's something like keep me on record or we'll be in touch because it sounds like we can collaborate. It doesn't have to be very specific, just something to kind of close out the conversation and say, okay, we had a meaningful interaction and to emphasize that with both parties. Hmm. I love that. I want to ask though, because I do remember you talking about this on air at Cheddar, that there have been times when you maybe didn't always have access. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this, like even coming into the country. Yes. Name Nora Ali. Yes, exactly. Good memory, Barbara. You are a very good listener. The number of times you recall things from months or years past and bring it up and I've even forgotten is, is amazing. So I think another thing with access, having access, I think is being the default. And what I mean by that is, let's say you're in executive at a fortune 500 company, you're probably a straight white man. And if you're not the default, then you are going to run into resistance. That is just fact. That is, there's so much empirical evidence to support that. So I've run into resistance in situations that I wouldn't have ever expected. And one is literally coming back, as you pointed out from international travel and that my name, Nora Ali for some time was on the no-fly list. I come from a Muslim family. So I would be traveling with my non-Muslim friends. We'd be going through customs and they would joke because they they knew it was coming. They're like, all right, Nora, well, I guess we'll see you at baggage claim because they knew that I would have to be held in quarantine because of my name. And you go in the room and the only people you see in that room are other brown and black people. So that's been an annoyance. I I understand it's just an annoyance on my behalf. I haven't faced a level of discrimination that I can say has held me back, especially from a career and job perspective. But then other little things like not being allowed into my own apartment building in New York City, where we had different dorm. It's not the building I live in now, but there was a different doorman every week. It was not a very consistent person kind of manning the door but they would ask me for my ID every single time I came in, which is fine. It's safe and secure. But then if I had white friends come in or white boyfriends at the time come in, they wouldn't even question them. And they didn't live there. Like they were my guests and they didn't get questioned. So it's these little things. And we use the word microaggression a lot. And I've had a guest on Cheddar actually say this to me. She said, it's like death by a thousand cuts. And I've never forgotten it because it does get to you and you don't think about it until someone asks you and you talk about it like we are now. And then you remember, okay, wait, yes, I have faced resistance in my life and it doesn't make me feel good. But I'm lucky enough that doors have been open for me. 
my parents have given me a wonderful life here in the United States, but it is important to remember those small moments because a lot of other people are going through that and in a more elevated fashion as well. I think it's really important for all of us to hear that. I want to talk a little bit about your competitive drive, which is something I admire. Because again, when I was growing up, that was something that tended to be tamped out of a girl. And I love that you are so openly competitive and that it it juices you. Can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yes. Oh, Barbara, it is in my blood. And it's not competitiveness in a way that lessens anybody else around me. It's, I don't know what the right word for it is, but it's a cohesive competitiveness in a way because I grew up competing in violin and piano. I was a very serious musician growing up. And oftentimes I would be competing against my friends and even my sisters who are also both musicians. So we would be competing in the same competitions, in the same performances, and you just support each other. There was no unfriendly competition. And if one person won, we would celebrate them. If another person lost, we would help to console them and go eat junk food with them afterwards. So I've just always wanted to win in life, but have really understood how to accept failure and loss with grace and even happiness and allow that to fuel to fuel me the next time because I had that support of my sisters and friends who I competed quote unquote against, but really competed with and together. I think that's very generational, the sort of win-win approach to competition. No, I love it. So how did you grow comfortable with the loss part and allow it to fuel you? Cause that is a gift. Because it happens enough and you understand that a lot of things are out of your control. And I think it was helpful that I learned how to take losses in such a subjective space like music. If you're competing, playing a piano or violin concerto written by Tchaikovsky decades ago, most of the judgment is subjectivity in that the judge is trying to gauge how musical you are, your interpretation of that piece It's not like a sport where you're making goals or making that shot. Music is inherently subjective. So I learned to just take it with a grain of salt, not take it personally, and move on to the next. And I think that somehow translated into the workplace and otherwise, I just felt so familiar with that feeling of rejection that I was able to bounce back pretty quickly. I think what I'm hearing is that it doesn't define you. Yeah, it doesn't define me and it fuels me. It's a cliched thing to say, but it just makes you want to work that much harder and win, quote unquote, win the next thing. What are other things that you're tackling right now? In some, oh boy, we're going to get existential real quick, Barbara. Oh, I'm excited about that. (laughs) I think a lot of us are tackling this is how much does my work and my job define me versus everything else in life? And I I say this because I've had a lot of debate depending physically on where I am. 
So right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm in my studio in New York City. I live alone. And I wake up. I walk like two feet to my desk to do work. When I'm done with work, I will go to my couch, which is another two feet away behind me, eat some dinner, probably bring my laptop with me, keep doing work. So bottom line is I'm just kind of always in work because I'm in this one room and I'm working by myself. But then I've spent several weeks at a time in Maryland where my my older sister is and she has two daughters, my nieces, the most important two people in my life. And when I work there, I'm like, wow, family is a thousand percent the most important driving factor in my life. So I'll have an important meeting and to, to reward myself, I'll leave the little office that I share with my sister and go squeeze some babies as a reward and, and hang out with them. But now in my apartment, my reward for having a great meeting is I will walk another two feet to my kitchen and make a coffee and then go on to the next meeting. There's no, there was, there's no balance, I think, in my studio by myself. So what I'm tackling right now is really big life stuff. I've been so career focused, so career driven, not married, um, no family besides my, you know, my sisters and my parents and, and relatives and all that. But I'm definitely tackling what is the most important thing to me right now. And I don't have an answer. It's just what I'm in the middle of right now. It's what does life look like moving forward? But I think many of us have asked that question in the last year. And many of us had the opportunity for the first time in a long time to slow down and ask that question. On the coachy side, I'd say, Nora, what brings you joy? (laughs) Oh, what brings me joy? Chicken fingers, first and foremost. Oh, amen. (laughs) I mean, I'm joking, but I'm also not joking. I love food, not just for the food, but what it represents in my family every important event and every celebration everything revolves around food so that every meal brings me joy um but also being with my family i i have when it comes to friendships i'm more of the the few but quality friendships kind of person and i often find myself being a friendship because of proximity kind of person as well i tend to become friends with my coworkers because i see them all the time but as we've all grappled with during this um, time, we're not with our coworkers every day. So you really start to figure out who your real sustainable friends are. But aside from friendships, family is just always there for me. And I have a super close relationship with both my sisters, with my parents, with my nieces. So I feel like that is what is most important to me is family. And because of that, food is an extra layer because it's such an important part of what we do as a family. I think I'm hearing how you're right now accessing other parts of your psyche and your personality. (laughs) Yes, I probably am doing that. I have a lot of time to just think now, which I didn't really allow myself to do before. Oh, so that's accessing that amazing brain of yours. That's fabulous. It's fabulous, but I've also realized that it's hard for me to just allow myself to think. I always have a podcast on. I always have the TV on. If I'm not doing focused work, I don't just shut my brain off and think. And that's why I've started to try meditating a little bit. I've said I would meditate for the last several years, but finally I started doing five-minute increments, five minutes once a day, most days. 
still can't turn my brain off during those five minutes, but I feel that it's a start because I'm allowing myself to try at least. And it's, it gives me real anxiety to not have something on or to be doing something specifically because my thoughts race and I automatically go to what is giving me the most stress. All the embarrassing moments I've had in my life from when I was in elementary school, you know, the, the usual. And I've realized a lot of people have these same issues. Weirdly enough, TikTok has opened a lot of our eyes as far as relatability with the rest of the world. People are, Gen Z especially, just very open about their own anxieties, their issues, depression. And you see on TikTok that there's other people like you. So even though social media is villainized in many ways, as it, as it should be in many ways, it's really helped people learn about each other and be more open and honest in general. Wait, you just taught me something. So if Instagram has always been really about the curated life. You're saying that TikTok is the opposite? Exactly. Exactly. And that is in part why it's become such a viral platform because it's not, obviously there's creators who do things that are highly edited and it's very well thought out, really well put together. But some of the videos that go the most viral are sometimes accidental videos. Oh, this funny thing just happened or I'm just going to literally put my camera on myself crying because I'm having this moment and I just wanted to post it and share. There's a lot of that on TikTok. And especially in this last year, year and a half, people have needed that to just see people in their realist. And that's the stuff that now goes viral. So I actually applaud younger generations for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, indeed I do too. I do want to go back for one second. You were laughing a little bit, but talking about the challenges of being new to a meditation practice and, and the anxiety that that causes when you think that you're bad at meditating. <laughs> yes. but, but the point is in a really welcoming practice and platform, you'll discover the mind wandering is so human, right? So you just rest on your wandering thoughts. Yeah, that's a good point. You can allow it to happen. And I think the acknowledgement that it's happening is part of the meditative practice, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. yes and, then, right. and then your heart rate starts to go down, which is part of the goal. But I want to recap for a second. I have a few more questions, but I want to go back just because I love this conversation around access. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, where we started was uh, you won just the sort of universal idea. Cause I do believe in with this podcast is the idea is access to information because many people don't know what they don't know. And so it's to put it out there to say, to lower the barriers to entry. So this is what you need to know. And you just shared so much great information about how to network, how to be specific when you actually take that action and reach out to people because the first step in access or the first step past information would be how to get into that room. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And then what you do once you get in that room. So I want to ask you, what are some of the books, platforms, people, podcasts that you mentioned, resources, anything that you recommend that's had a great influence on you? So I've been learning a lot about unscripted TV without giving too much away. That's part of what I'm working on right now. And you're right. I didn't know what I didn't know until I started doing the research. And I've listened to the Spectacle podcast by Mariah Smith. She'll every episode 
go through kind of the genesis and the motivation and the strategy and the ins and outs of a particular reality show that is very popular. Like they'll do, she did an episode on Queer Eye, she did an episode on Great British Baking Show, which is most commonly everybody's favorite because it's just so heartwarming and just talks about them. And we'll bring in experts. There was this one woman named Kristen Warner who wrote a book called Colorblind Casting, Colorblind TV Casting. You actually, Barbara, should read this book. And it just is an amazing piece of research on unconscious biases as you're casting for television. And being colorblind is actually not good because you want to be able to write stories for people of color, for women, and not just plop in diversity at the last minute because it looks good as a band-aid anyway so mariah brings in experts like kristen warner on her show and i think it's just amazing i've also been listening to reality of reality with Eliza rosen also has great guests on her show lots of executives vh1 colleague of mine by the way oh my gosh really Mm -hmm. that's amazing her podcasts are the ones that i will usually listen to before i meet with production companies because she meets with all the production company execs And without fail, I'll just type in somebody's name in Apple Podcasts, and then the first hit will be an episode by Eliza. So I love that. A book that I recently bought is called Loonshots. And we've all heard the term moonshots before, which is an idea that's intended to have a 10x impact on said problem versus a 10% impact. But loonshots is this notion of ideas that get put to the side get laughed at because they seem so crazy that no one believes in it. So examples are things like flying cars, which we have now, or self-driving vehicles, which we have now, or the internet, which we have now. Just the, the first person to have verbalized this kind of thing was called crazy. And that's something that helped. This book is helping me understand kind of how to take no's as well. We were talking earlier about how to accept failures People with the best ideas have been told no thousands and thousands of times. So Loon Shots, great book. And then other more general podcasts about building companies and just learning about different industries. How I Built This by Guy Raz. A lot of people like that one. And also Armchair Expert by Dak Shepard. I've listened to just countless hours of both of those podcasts and I love them very much. So that's a long list of podcasts and one book in there. You know, something else you mentioned in the Loon, it's called Loon Ideas. Sorry. Loon shots. Loon shots. Yes. The ability to dream big. Sorry to interrupt you, but that's something that I have had to learn over time because I'm a pretty practical person. I like to not just dream and think, but actually do. But I've recently come to realize that your vision needs to be big because whatever comes to fruition will be some version of that big vision. And don't be afraid to have that vision seem unattainable. Because at every step of my career, every vision seemed unattainable. Before I joined Cheddar as an anchor, (laughs) I had never done television before. And being able to cover fun stories, launch new shows just seemed so unattainable. But then it happened. So that's something I had to learn over time is you can have visions that seem totally unattainable at the time. One, I do want to address, and this might be too inside baseball, but for anyone listening, so you prepared the hell out of your debut on television. So that's the part that many people would miss because you make it look easy, but I know how hard you worked. 
And I have to presume that goes into everything that you do. Yes, it is true. And you and I worked together before my debut and consistently surprised at the fact that everyone doesn't prepare and over-prepare because that's just my default is coming into everything being over-prepared. My sisters and I joke that it's just how we were raised and how we grew up. And there's no harm in over-preparing. If you don't use all the information that you stored in your brain, it'll come in handy later on. That was my approach to new stories on Cheddar is if there was some complex tech story, business story, politics story even, no more than what you plan to say on air. If you just have like two bullets of what you intend to ad lib about, then the conversation is not going to seem natural. You're not going to be able to sustain the conversation. So I would always study really deep every story, not every story that's not feasible, but every story that I thought would be interesting to our viewers so that you have a lot more information and context for yourself, even if you don't say it all out loud. And that's another thing is you don't have to say it all out loud. Some people feel like they have to just word vomit everything that they know. I'm not talking about anyone specifically, just like generally, people have to feel like they have to prove themselves. I don't like that. (laughs) It's better if you know more than you say. (laughs) Less is more. Exactly. And conciseness is a hallmark of executive presence. Yes, it's hard. It's much easier to just keep going and going and going and going instead of making your point. I've found recently that if I feel like I'm rambling, I will just summarize the point at the very end and say, so to answer your question, X, Y, Z, where I could have just started with that (laughs) instead of going all the way around. Well, in summary, Nor Ali, this has been a (laughs) glorious conversation with you. I thank you so much. Where would you like people to find you and follow you? You can follow me on Instagram at Nora Ali. It's a mix of my nieces and violin clips and just me being me. And then on Twitter at Nora K. Ali. And I'm on Clubhouse as at Nora. Figured on Clubhouse because that's the cool thing to do now. Talk about access. Yeah, exactly. And you can also visit my website, NoraAli.com please do. And I want to thank you for listening. You can always find my 12 tips for success on camera free download at ableintermedia.com and be sure to hit the subscribe button. So you always know when new episodes of camera ready and able become available. 